So if you flipped over into Daniel chapter 7, for some of you who are new, this is just like flipping open to any other book of the Bible right now. For some of you who are not, you're like, huh, Daniel chapter 7. wasn't expecting we would go to Daniel chapter 7 today. But I have various reasons for wanting to come here, and none of them to be a point of contention, none to be a point of trying to draw for you guys endless Christian debates, and not here to simply mix words. I, I, I have one point. I don't have three points. I don't, I don't have five. I just have one singular point that I want you to know from this passage, from these verses right here, apart from everything else that may be confusing about the book of Daniel, I want you to know this. I want to convince you today that this Son of Man that you should have heard as we read those Old Testament and New Testament readings, that Son of Man repeating over and over again, is this. That the one like a Son of Man right here in verse 13 is none other than Jesus Christ as a crucified and risen Messiah who's been enthroned in power. He's ruling and reigning now with the explicit purpose that this, the kingdoms of the world have already become Jesus Christ's and that His people have already inherited it and they will continue to inherit this kingdom because they are united to this King who is seeking to bring the nations to Himself. That's it. And I can send that to you later too. That was a little long one point. But nonetheless, that's the point. That's it. That's it. That's all I want you to be convinced of as we come to this text. Because there are many things as you begin to read the Bible, and some of your questions have shown us this, that can be complicated in Scripture. See, Scripture, while it is abundantly clear in its message about Jesus Christ, is not as clear on some of the other details. Some of these other details require us as Christians to do work, to come and be approved of this Word, to come and to look at God's Word, and as the Bible calls it, being a good Berean, of coming to the Word, examining it to see if it be true. But for today, I hope to simply convince you of that one simple point, that singular point. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, and He is ruling and reigning now. The kingdoms of this earth are already His, and Christians, that means they are yours. And that has implications for you. That's going to have implications for not only how you live and how you look towards the future, but it's going to have implications on what you do internally. As one man said, if you were be bent to conquer the world, you would be bent to conquer your own heart. And if you would, then the rest is conquered. So this is going to play into our lives, into the Christian's mind, into the Christian's heart, not only for what he sees into the future, but what he sees inside and how he deals with his own self, his own sin in his own life, and therefore how he can deal with life outside of him. But I want to do this for a couple reasons. One, I think going through this text will help us in giving us understanding for who Jesus Christ is, for to, to, to stir in you your affections for Jesus Christ. For Yes, you know Him as Savior. Yes, you know Him to be the one who has given you the forgiveness of your sins, who has made you right before God as we've gone through the last four weeks. But there's more. There's much more. There is forgiveness of sins. There is being justified. There is being at peace with God. 
And there's a purpose for that. There is a goal in mind for why God decided to come down and save people. He's saving them unto something, and this is it right here. And I want you to see Jesus Christ as the one who stands at the center of it so that you'd be stirred for Him. That you would be stirred for Him and just to hear that if you were to believe upon Him today and hear your sins are forgiven, I would hope you'd be just as stirred to hear He reigns now, it all belongs to Him and belongs to you, then go. I want you to be stirred just the same way as you would hear your sins are forgiven. So one, I think this will help us in our understanding in our lives of who Jesus Christ is more and more. He is the Son of Man. And we'll dive into what that means. And two, I want us to have a positive understanding of this text. Because if any of you do any kind of reading, and I'm not telling you to go do that tonight after you leave here, I don't want you to go home and just look at Daniel all night and day. But if you, when you do get into it, you should get into it at some point, you're going to realize Daniel's not the easiest book to begin interpreting. And it's one in which Christians have a, had much difference of opinion. So I don't want to get into the weeds today. I'm not going to try to tell you who every little detail of who this beast is, who this horn is, uh, who this, you know, you know, ten horned, you know, king, whatever. I'm not trying to get into all those details. I simply want to give you a positive understanding of this, of how you can get the main thrust of the book of Daniel, because I think this is it right here, what the main thrust of Daniel is, so that you would in turn be able to avoid some of that extra stuff that comes along to the side, because some of it will be for your benefit to study. And some of it will be at your absolute waste of time to study. And so hopefully giving a positive vision of what we find here in the book of Daniel is going to help us avoid the mess that many people find themselves in by trying to discern and decode and to chart and to categorize every little detail of the book of Daniel. And then they end up missing the whole point of the book of Daniel. So those are my reasons for wanting to do this. But mainly is you would be stirred for Jesus Christ, and you would be stirred for what He's doing, of why He saved you. What is He accomplishing through you now as His people? And that's what I want you to get out of this. So, Daniel chapter 7, I read those two verses right there. And I want to kind of give you, this, this first part is going to be very heavy scriptural, so buckle up. Um, this, is, this is not going to be application driven right here in, in the meantime, but I, I want you to be able to learn I want you to be able to start tying some scriptures together. I want you to start being able to put some different themes together. See how the Bible comes together as a story. But I first want to look right here in Daniel 7, just give you kind of an immediate context of what this is. So if you look, Daniel chapter 7 right here, you see verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. Now he said this before, go back to verse 1, Daniel chapter 7, he says in the first year, of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. So you get this capping, beginning and end. Daniel is seeing a vision, and he's recounting the vision. And if you go back a few verses, he says in verse 9, as I looked, and he recounts a vision. If you go back even further in verse 5, he says, and behold, another beast. And so, this, this repetition, Daniel is receiving a vision, and verse 13 and 14 are helping to continue to explain what the vision is. 
And so you get this capping right here. And then in 15, you can see Daniel says this, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. And Christians have been right there with him in reading this text. But the, the point is now the vision has ended right there, but he desires to know more. What does the vision mean? And then it gets explained to him. There, there, there appears to be this messenger of God there with him. And in verse 16 it says, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. Speaking of the vision that he just saw. So he says, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. And here's kind of where I want to give you context to why we read just 13 and 14. Because in 17, here's the interpretation. So in 13 and 14, we hear, Behold, there's this, there's this one like a son of man. He, he's coming on these clouds. He's coming to this, this figure called the Ancient of Days and being presented before him. And he's been given dominion. And he's been given dominion over what? A kingdom. And what is this kingdom filled of? Peoples, nations, languages, that they should do what? Serve him. So to get context of why that's the case, 17... Here this messenger starts interpreting this for Daniel. So in 17 he says, These four great beasts, and this is speaking of beasts that he earlier encountered in his vision. So there's these beasts in this vision before that come before this coming of this kingdom. So before this kingdom come in, there are these beasts, and these beasts succeed one another in devouring one another. So you have the first one, the, the, the first one comes in and conquers, and the boom, the second one comes in and devours the first one. And then the third devours the second, and then finally there's this fourth great beast who comes in, and he devours the third. And so he's telling them, these four beasts are what? Are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. So these four kings are going to represent four kingdoms. So there's these four kingdoms arising out of the earth. And then 18, he says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So as he's explaining this, he goes, Look, these four beasts are four kingdoms, but the people of God are going to come and inherit that kingdom that is spoken about in that Son of Man. They're going to inherit the kingdom that he has, and that kingdom is the one that rules over all kingdoms. It destroys all of those former kingdoms. In fact, those kingdoms now become the kingdoms of this ancient, or excuse me, this son of man, and by extension, the people of God. So you track in so far where, where, where this is going. He's just giving you a basic interpretation of what these four kingdoms are. And as most you know, if, if you're going to go and read, if you look at scholars or if you look at interpreters, most are going to interpret these kingdoms as the first one being the one right here in Daniel's day. Because who is the king that he is under as he receives this vision? Back in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 7. Who does it say the king is? Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So most commentators recognize that this first beast, this first kingdom, is Babylon itself which we know is going to eventually fall. The prophets of old told them of this, you're going to go into exile to Babylon, but then Babylon itself is going to come and be judged because of what they would do to the people of God. And then you have kingdoms that come after it. Historically, you have, the, and you don't need to, I'm not trying to get fancy, I'm just telling you the kingdom's names. You have Medo-Persia, 
that comes in, and then you have Greece, and then we all know the biggest one, Rome. We have the Roman Empire. And so these four kingdoms, these four kings, are represented symbolically by these beasts in Daniel's vision. And he's telling you right here that God's kingdom is going to come in, and like he says in Daniel 2, like a stone cut out of, of a rock that wasn't formed by human hands, is going to come in and it's going to crush those kingdoms. It's going to lay them to waste. And this kingdom that is set up, this one, this God's kingdom, the one given by the Son of Man to His people is going to last for how long? Forever. There's going to be no end to this kingdom that's going to come in. So, in Daniel's immediate context, you've got to be thinking, Daniel is seeing this yet future for himself. He's under the rule of this Babylonian man, right? This sounds really great to him in the moment, in the same way as we talk about the gospel going to the nations. That sounds really great, and we don't see it happening as much as we thought we would, right? That's the first thing that comes to mind. So, right here, these four kingdoms, Daniel's right at the start, barely even tracked along on this, on this progression, and yet he's been given the pinnacle of why he should have hope that this is going to be something that happens. And that's because he has seen a vision from God of this Son of Man. And it says, and he will have dominion and glory and the kingdom. So there is Daniel's immediate context right here. Daniel's receiving this vision. And he is receiving this vision of these four kingdoms that are oppressing, that will oppress the people of God. And then finally, there will be this cataclysmic, this, this central point where that gets cut off. And God's kingdom is established, and these kingdoms are done away with, and they are demolished. But then you're asking yourselves, well, okay, I understand everything you just said, but what's the point for the vision? Why would that be a help for Daniel right now? Well, let's go through, let's go through that. So flip, keep your finger there. I want you to flip to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, and like any good book telling a story, you're going to get the purpose for the book right at the beginning of the story, hopefully. All right, so Daniel chapter 1 here, he says, Look, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of where again? Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, notice who was given into the, the king of Jerusalem was given into his hands. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So right at the beginning, you get the, the, the whole context for the book of Daniel. Daniel and the nation has been exiled. That's, what, that's just what happened. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon has come in. They have laid siege to Jerusalem. Now they have hauled them off in exile. And it is all in fulfillment of what, what was prophesied, of, of Israel's entire history of what was prophesied before. So flip on over to Leviticus, and I want you to hear some of these. I want you to, want you to hear some of this, this context of why Daniel's vision is needed for him in the moment. And it's because Daniel's in exile. And I want you to hear how, how Scripture is consistent upon this and how Scripture helps us to understand the absolute necessity of this vision for Daniel to awaken in him confidence that God is going to act in the future. So Levit Leviticus, excuse me, not 25, 26. Leviticus 26. I'm just going to read a section of this. 
Now, 25 and 26 stands as a unit, but here comes kind of the, the pinnacle of, of this. So in Leviticus 26, Moses is giving the cursings of this covenant. This old covenant came with blessings and cursings. Do this and live would be the blessing. Don't do this and be cursed is the cursings. So look right there, verse 27. This is Moses speaking to the people you know, on God's behalf. He says, but... If in spite of this, meaning in spite of everything I've given you, in spite of all the commands I've given you, in spite of everything that I've done for you and redeeming you, but in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me. Then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my sore will abhor you, and I will lay your cities waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas." And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Moses repeats this back in Deuteronomy 4 as he gives this retelling of the law, and he says this beginning in Deuteronomy 4, 25-28. When you father children and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, which would be what? Worshipping idols. So as to provoke Him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going to over that you were going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. So imagine Daniel now at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1 being hauled off, knowing his Old Testament, knowing the Torah, the first five books of Moses, knowing all of those curses being pronounced upon Israel, and he's experiencing them firsthand. The curses have fallen upon him and his people. And so Daniel chapter 7 and this text of, look, these four kingdoms are persecuting the people of God right now because they've been scattered to these kingdoms. But there's coming one. There's coming one like a son of man and he will come up and he will present himself before God and he will be given a dominion and his people will therefore be redeemed and be given a dominion. And you can understand why Daniel needs that word. Because it doesn't look like it's going to happen. He's being hauled off. I don't know if you noticed this, but this is, this is just a little fun fact for you. At the beginning of Daniel chapter 1, when we read, notice it said that they went and got hauled off to Babylon, but then in verse 2 it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, and he brought them to what? The, the, the land of Babylon? No, he says the land of Shinar. Why would, he, why would he do that? Why would he switch up the name right there? Well, if you go back into your Old Testament... The, the plains, sometimes it's translated, or, or the, the country of Shinar, that is where Nimrod 
If you ever remember Nimrod, if you go back and read Genesis, Nimrod was the man who, who built the great city of Babel and who would later go on to build Assyria, which would later be an absolute terror to the people of God. So much that, what? What happens when you read um, Jonah? Whoa, almost forgot that for a second. When you read Jonah, he doesn't, why, do, why do you think he doesn't want to go to Nineveh? Why do you think he would not want to see repentance come to Nineveh? They slaughtered Israelites. So here you got the people of God being hauled off to the very epitome of anti-God. The very epitome of it, Babylon itself, the old Babel, the place where the people came to build for themselves, what? That tower for their own glory. Where the nations were scattered there. I mean, it is the prime example of the land, or think about the throne of Satan, right there in this land of Shinar, right here in Babylon. So you could imagine why Daniel would be perplexed at this vision, why he's, he's, he's struggling to understand it, because it just doesn't make sense with what is going on for him right then and there. And he knows Leviticus and Deuteronomy is true for him right now. And I think he's pondering these things. So flip to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. So Jeremiah 29 verse 10 begins right here. I'm going to read 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So, look, Jeremiah right here, a prophet in a day in which he sees the downfall of his own kingdom and his own people, is prophesying on behalf of the Lord saying, look, you're going to Babylon. It's going to happen. And it's going to be for what? It's going to be for 70 years. And when they're completed, God is going to be faithful to visit them again. God will be faithful to fulfill His promise of bringing about the Messiah. Why? Because God knows the plans that He has for this people. He knows the plans for them is to ultimately bring them a Messiah for their welfare, not for their loss. So you think Daniel's, Daniel's starting to, 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 to pull these and piece these together. Because now flip back to Daniel with me. I know I'm all over the place, but I, I just I want you to get this. In Daniel chapter 9, we read this. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hasuerus, by descent, of, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived where? In the books, the number of years that according to who? The word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So, you can think about this. Daniel receiving this vision, these four kingdoms, and he sees, okay, the, we know we were promised exile. We know we were promised this if we had disobeyed. He knows the covenant curses. He's reading Jeremiah and understanding that's what God had not only affirmed to Moses, but Jeremiah affirmed it himself that it would come about. And Daniel is looking. He, it's like he's meditating upon these scriptures because he wants to know, when are the desolations of Israel going to be over? When is Jerusalem no longer going to lay desolate under the enemy's hands? He's perceiving in these books, and he's perceiving rightly, 
Jeremiah is going back to the Scriptures. He's going back to Jeremiah and reading, Oh, Jeremiah saw this. Seventy years. Okay, seventy years. And think of the Second Chronicles. Turn to Second Chronicles now with me. Second Chronicles chapter 36. So right at the end of Second Chronicles, somewhere you probably thought you never turned, Second Chronicles. Chapter 36, 20 to 21. So this, this, this is speaking of, of Jerusalem captured, being burned, them going into exile. So read right there, beginning of verse 20. He, speaking of, uh, 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 of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So, Daniel has all of this scripture right here. Now he's, he's understanding these covenant curses. He's understanding that, these, that, that not only had the prophets spoken of this and promised of this, but now this chronicler who's put back the history of Israel into these chronicles right now has interpreted those to say, look, and that... That's what happened. He took these people into Babylon. Why? Because they disobeyed. Because of their disobedience, they were to be expelled. And for how long? For 70 years. Why? Because their disobedience was a pollution to the land, and God cast them out of that land, and He cast them out for 70 years so that the land would keep its Sabbaths. So that's where Daniel is. He sees these kingdoms. He's understanding the covenant curses, but... I think Daniel also knows of the promises attached with it. He knows that there's a later promise of blessing in return. It's not simply God casts His people off forever. They're completely done away with. He knows that there's going to be later blessing in return. So, we, you know, at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1, it's, Daniel's probably extremely young, getting cast off into exile. The covenant curse is being visited upon his people. But when we read Daniel chapter 9... If you notice, there was a different king. No longer was this the king of, uh, of Babylon. This wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. This was the, the, the king of what nation now at that time? Amid. So a lot of time has passed. Now, what's happened? A new kingdom has arose. Not the kingdom of God. Another oppressive kingdom oppressing the people of God. But now Daniel's older. And Daniel, knowing his Bible well like we should, is reading it and going, Oh, hey, look. This time is passing. I'm, we're coming up to this now. This 70 years is going to end. We're looking for this end. So God would, he, he would once again visit His people and bring them back into Jerusalem. So I want you to flip back uh, to Daniel chapter 9. Because th this really ties into probably one of the, I mean, one of the greatest scriptures. I think this is one, probably one of Nick's favorite scriptures too that he talks about of what it looks like to cry out to God in humbleness and humility and to confess sin. And what does God promise us every time when we would do so? Yeah, He would dwell with us. He would meet us. If you would seek to meet the Lord, you would seek to confess your sin, He promises you He will come and meet you and forgive your sin. And so, how do we know how the covenant curses will be lifted? How do we know... That Jerusalem will one day no longer be desolate. That the people of God will once again be blessed. What will they have to do? 
return to the Lord. What is the refrain in the prophets? But in that day when you return to me, I will return to you. But has the nation done that? No. They're in exile. But Daniel's looking at this going, Lord, these 70 years are coming up. About to come to pass. What's going on? But then notice, notice what Daniel does. Look at verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by what? By prayer and pleas for mercy with what? Fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we... Notice he includes himself. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Now jump down to 16, verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Amen. That is a prayer right there. If you ever found one in Scripture right there, that is a prayer. So Daniel knows he knows exile's not the end. And I don't know if, there, if Daniel did this intentionally in writing this about himself, but it's as if Daniel's now representing the nation and he's pleading on behalf of, we, Lord, we sinned against you. He is confessing the sins of Israel, of Jerusalem, back to God now. And he's doing what was prophesied for them to do. They would humble themselves and they would confess their sin. God would re Visit them. He would come to them, forgive their sins. And I want you to, want you to hear these promises. These are, these are promises you'll hear a lot here. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is days that are coming after punishment, after exile, after what Daniel's experiencing. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For, verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after those days of exile, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I'll flip to Joel. So you have Daniel, Hosea, Joel, if you're flipping through your Bible. Joel chapter 2. 
and read this striking similarity of why Daniel prayed the way he prayed. I, I just included this section of verses before I got to the main verses, but I, I want you to hear it. Listen to the, almost the word for word of what it says and what Daniel did. Joel 2, begin, or yeah, Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Listen to this. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. And who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And then read of what is going to come about if this happens Go down to verse 28, Joel 2, verse 28. And it shall, certainty, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens on the earth, and blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Daniel is clinging to these. He's doing exactly what God said He will come and do when the people come and confess. He promises after those days, those days will come to a close. Those days of exile will end. God's day of punishment will end for His people. And it will end in two ways. One, it will end in a judgment and it will end in salvation. Those two things will be clear. And so Daniel is looking and seeing there is a blessing to come. There is a promise yet to be fulfilled. Something he is looking towards. And I think that thing he's looking towards is this. He's looking towards that Son of Man who is going to come and do this. Because Daniel's cries don't bring about the kingdom. Because if you go back to Daniel chapter 9... Daniel gets told it's going to be a little bit longer. These 70 years are coming to a close, and yet Daniel gets told, not only is it 70 years, but God promises sevenfold. He promises 77s. It's going to be a long time. It's going to be 490 years before the people of God see their salvation. And so Daniel needs the Son of Man. His prayers and his cries are not bringing about this kingdom of which will bring about his people's salvation. It won't. So who's this Son of Man? In Daniel 7, he says, I saw and behold, that the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. So who is this Son of Man? Who is this figure? And now, there's a point I want to make clarification on for here because I, th I think from a lot of Christians, they hear Son of Man and they also think of another phrase too in Scripture, Son of God. And sometimes, and I think this just happens and people just with good intentions try to say like, okay, the Son of God and Son of Man. Well, we know Jesus refers to Himself as both of those. Son of God refers to His divinity and Son of Man refers to His humanity. And I'm just here to say that's just not true. That's just not the case. So when we, when we hear Son of Man, 
I want you to hear it. I want you to wipe the board clean, wipe the slate clean of, of that idea. So let me first give you an example of, of the Son of God language, okay? Let me give you an example. Turn to Luke um, chapter 3, or you can just listen. Luke chapter 3. I'm not going to read all of it, but you get the genealogy of Jesus Christ right here in Luke. And so you get, you know, this man was the son of, this man was the son of, and they're tracing back this genealogy to prove to you that Jesus is the Messiah. And at the end of this genealogy, you get this. You get, you get these last couple, the son of Enos, who's the son of Seth, who's the son of Adam. And then it says this about Adam. It says, Adam, the son of God. Which obviously doesn't mean Adam was God. It's not speaking to Adam's divinity. It is speaking to Adam's role of who he came from. He was made by God and given a role by God to be a son. So, when we think about Jesus then being called a son of God, like you think of Jesus' baptism. What happens when He goes down into the waters? He comes up from the waters. The Spirit of God descends upon Him. And then a voice from heaven speaks, This is my Son, whom I love, listen to Him. Or at the Mount of Transfiguration, He takes two of the disciples up with Him. He's transformed into all of His glory. And then a voice speaks again and says, This is My Son. Listen to Him. So you, you can see the Son of God. The, the Son of God description is, is not a description of His divinity, though it does point to Christ's divinity. It is a description of the role and the function that Christ fulfills. The Bible speaks of Jesus Christ as the better Adam. He's the last Adam. He's better than Adam. Adam failed, Christ succeeds. He's the true Son of God. So, very similarly, the Son of Man is a title like that. Now, where do we get that Son of Man title? Where, where would we kind of fish this from? Well, that's why we read Psalm 8. So flip to Psalm chapter 8. We read this one for our Old Testament reading. So Psalm chapter 8. And notice this is a Psalm of David. This is important right here. This is a Psalm of David. And David is described in terms of as a son of God. And he is promised that he will also have an offspring, a seed, a son, who will sit on the throne forever. So when you look at verse 3, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, what you have set in place, notice what he says here in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Now you may think I'm just playing with words right here. Oh, there's a phrase, son of man. There's man right there. You're just kind of tying man, son of man together. Whoop-de-doo, right? Like, it's just magic. But I, I want you to think about what comes after in verse 5. Of, uh, uh, of who this sounds like. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And what does he receive? What does this man receive, this son of man? You've given him what? dominion over the work of hands. You've put all things under His feet. And then He says, it's all these beasts of the field, of the, the birds of the heavens, of the fish of the sea. So when we read in verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him, another way that you could translate that, and I think would be a good translation, is what is Adam that you are mindful of him? And the son of Adam that you care for him. So this son of man just like the Son of God title is very similar. This Son of Man 
is to be like Adam, but better. And David, I think, recognizes himself of that. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He's given him dominion. He's put all things under his feet. All the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, they all have been given to him. So this, this, this son of man title then of what Daniel is saying, this son of man approaches this ancients of days, I think is none other than this son of man, this new Adam that the entire Old Testament is looking for. From Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament, we are looking for David's greater son. We're looking for His seed who will sit upon the throne forever. And by doing so, will bring peace. He'll bring forgiveness of sins. He'll bring about a, re a, a renewal of the creation from the curse. All of this will come to pass. And so Daniel is picking up on earlier parts of Scripture and he is interpreting it and telling you what it means. So this Son of Man comes up to this Ancient of Days. And now we're... We, this one, we're probably like, okay, then who's the Ancient of Days? Right? Who's, what is He doing coming up to this Ancient of Days and receiving this glory, receiving this kingdom, receiving this power, receiving this people? And then that's where the New Testament comes in for this. So I want you to turn uh, to Matthew, Matthew chapter uh, 26. Because I want to hear, uh, I want you to hear how many times Jesus just simply refers to Himself as Son of Man. So you don't think I'm just drawing conclusions left and right. Notice, Jesus thinks of Himself in no uncertain terms as this Son of Man. He is this Messiah. He is this One. So I'm just going to read a, a few of these. Matthew 26, look at verse 2. You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and, speaking of Himself, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Look at verse 24. The Son of Man goes as is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He's speaking of Himself. Look at verse 45. Then He came to the disciples, this is Jesus, and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then verse 62-66 is kind of the capstone to this. He says this, and the high priest, this is Jesus before Caiaphas and the council of his own brethren. And the high priest says this to him, You have no answer to make. What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. So there you see those, those titles just interchanged right there. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest does what? He goes, Psh, no biggie, he called himself the Son of Man. Now what does he say? What does it say right there? The high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. So Jesus is in no uncertain terms the Son of Man. But what is this sign? What is this sign that they're going to see? That from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So I want you to flip to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And I'm going to give you a 
brief overview of this because we are not here for the weeds. We're here for some clarity. Matthew chapter 24. So this is how it begins, right? Let's start from the finish. And we're going to see if we can get through like a 40-yard dash really quick. So Matthew chapter 24. Jesus leaves the temple. He's just pronounced judgment upon them and the Pharisees. Going away, his disciples ask questions, okay? Here's what, here, here's what they ask. He says, um, the disciples ask, came and point out to the building, sim in the temple. He says, you see these pointing to the temple, temple standing in that day. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, here's their questions. Tell us, when will these things, speaking of the destruction of the temple, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, very clear from the context right here, there is coming judgment upon Israel, upon that temple, upon that old covenant system that you could think about back in those Old Testament prophets of judgment that's going to come. And he says, you're marveling at these buildings right here. Psh, they're all going to be knocked down to the last stone. And they go, well, when's this going to happen? What do you mean it's going to, like, the temple's going to fall? When, when's this going to happen? That's what they're asking. And Jesus goes on to tell them all of these different things. There's going to be all of these supposed signs that pop up of when this judgment's going to come. And he says, don't, don't listen to any of those. There's going to be one that comes. It's going, to be, it's going to be one that's very clear. And when you see it, you need to flee. So you can flee that judgment. All right, so this whole context right here of, of Matthew at 24 is Jesus telling them there is a judgment coming upon Israel, a judgment coming upon Jerusalem and the temple, and He's warning His followers there of how they can avoid and flee that judgment. All right, so if you're tracking me, that's the 40-yard dash to this because when we get to verse 29 of what our New Testament reading is, here is what I think Jesus is interpreting that as. So I want you to hear this. So Matthew 24, 29, here's what he says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, and you're going to hear some texts that we've already read from Joel chapter 2. Notice the similar language. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then... So this is going to happen. This tribulation is going to happen. This judgment is going to happen. Then what's going to happen? Then will appear where? On earth? No. There will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And then notice that what he says in verse 34, he says to those people standing there in his generation, he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus is picking up, what does he call himself? When you see the sign of man, when you see him coming on these clouds, where is this sign going to be taking place of? On earth or in heaven? It's going to be in heaven. So when now we can understand where this sign is going to take place and what it's going to be accompanied by judgment and salvation. And so now we can understand what Daniel chapter 7 is saying. This one, this son of man who comes on these clouds to the ancient of days, he's coming up to heaven. So who's the ancient of days? The father. He's coming up to heaven to sit at God's right hand. Psalm 110, what does God say to His Son? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
So the New Testament picks this up. Jesus recognizes himself as the Son of Man, and he says, this coming judgment and my my seating at the right hand of God the Father will be the sign for you of what Daniel was looking forward to and he thought he would never see is right there in front of him. It's right there. What do the people do? They crucify the Lord of glory. They crucify Him. But notice the glory that comes. Flip open to Acts chapter 1. We are just about to wrap up. I I know I'm going long, but Acts chapter 1. So we're going to do another 40-yard dash. But Acts chapter 1. So, Acts chapter 1. And then Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, we think of the Great Commission. And think about the language found there in the Great Commission too, of the things we just read in Daniel, all those Old Testament texts, what we read in Matthew, and we get to the end of Matthew. Jesus is resurrected from the, from the grave. He's about to send where? To His Father in heaven at the right hand of power. And He says, Therefore all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Dominion, authority has been given to Him. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. And right here in Acts, we get the very same, very similar promise of uh, Jesus orders them. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, we're going to look on. So, the... They're awaiting this power of the Spirit. And then look in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. And if I could put my own side note in, He's going to answer the question for us in the next chapter. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And very similar to Matthew 28, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, Acts and Matthew, you get this call for the disciples. Listen, the Spirit's going to come on. Don't worry about the times. Don't worry about the seasons. Be faithful. Right? This great commission, this calling for them to go out and to preach the gospel. And then what do we find immediately in chapter 2? Acts chapter 2, if you flip your page, or maybe you don't flip a page. Acts chapter 2. What falls upon the disciples? The Spirit. Pentecost, the church is born. The Spirit falls upon the house. And what do they start doing? They start speaking in foreign languages. The Bible says tongues. That's how you need to understand that. Foreign languages and people in the area are hearing them. And, it's, and it says that these people are asking themselves, they were in verse 7 of chapter 2, these people, they're amazed and astonished. It's saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we, each of us, hear in our own private native tongue? So, these people are hearing this and going, how is it that these Galileans are speaking in all of these different tongues? And some are mistakenly saying, oh, it's because they've been drinking. And then here's where we get Peter. Here's where we get Sermon at Pentecost. Here's where I get fired up right here at verse 14. Peter explains what's going on, right? Because they're saying they're filled with wine. And Peter says this. Look at verse 14. But Peter 
standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He says, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's like buying beer before nine o'clock. You don't do that. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now we've heard this already. We've heard this already. We know Daniel would have known this because of Jeremiah, because of Joel. He would, have, he would have understood all of these different things. So here is what Peter is doing. Here's the setup. The Spirit comes, they're speaking in tongues, and they're proclaiming the all-knowing supremacy of Jesus Christ in these tongues, and they want to know what is going on. And Peter is about to tell you what's happening He's going to interpret the event for you. And notice he doesn't begin with his own words. He quotes the prophet Joel. So look at verse 17. And in the last days, we've heard that before. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days... I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he quotes Joel, the thing Daniel knew and was told it's coming later, is now here right now, and he says that these things you're seeing are a fulfilling of that very thing before your eyes. Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14 is being fulfilled right here. Right here in Acts 2. It's beginning right here. The kingdom of God has now been ushered in. And how do we know? Think of the disciples' questions back in the first chapter. When's the kingdom going to be restored to Israel? When's it going to come back? And they don't really know what they're talking about. Psh, Israel, this thing's going to go a lot bigger than Israel. But what happens? What happens? Let's go over now to verse 29, Acts 2. Acts 2.29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, where? At the right hand of the Father, in heaven, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is telling you, friends, that that Son of Man who was to approach the Ancient of Days and sit at His right hand in power and glory, receive a kingdom, release His people from bondage, and give them a kingdom of all the nations, has begun. 
It happened 2,000 years ago, right here when Jesus ascended. The Spirit comes down. His church goes out and proclaims, and He says, Look, it's happened. Let the house of God know that God has made Jesus Lord in Christ, sitting upon His throne, ruling and reigning now, executing what was prophesied to Daniel back in that Babylon exile. It's happening. It's come. It's here. It's now. It's begun. And then notice what happens. Notice, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter said, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The very one who came to save them, they have crucified. And he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of that coming kingdom. And then what does it say right at the end? So those who received His word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Who just received the kingdom back that the disciples asked in Acts chapter 1? The people of God. The true people of God. The ones who when they see the risen Messiah who was crucified for their sins are cut to the heart and they say, what must we do? Because we see Him ruling and reigning. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Repent and be baptized. And the kingdom is yours. So that's what I want you to see, church. I want you to see that what Daniel foresaw and what he waited for long and probably with much tears and with much groaning and with his own death he did not see has come 2,000 years ago and remains and you are in its midst now. You be a believer in Jesus Christ now, you have come to His kingdom. The book of Hebrews says, By faith we have already come up to that heavenly dwelling place with Jesus Christ. That all the spiritual blessings are already ours in Christ Jesus. We are there. But it warns you that if you be not a Christian, if you have not bowed to Jesus Christ, you best stand in awe and in trembling because the King sitting on His throne is no longer the King upon the cross. He is no longer the lowly and meek and the, and the humble lamb bleeding upon the cross. He is now the ruling and reigning Messiah. He demands obedience. He demands people come unto Him and the obedience that they offer to Him is faith. That's what He demands. And church, it's here now. So as you're reading through what's coming in our future, what's happened in the past, of all these things people want to project, know that this is happening. Know that it's happening in your midst now. Know that the kingdom of God is growing regardless of coronavirus and regardless of how many charts people want to make about the future. This is happening now. You are in it. You are a part of it. You have been brought into this kingdom. So what are some conclusions that we need to draw from this? That first one, kingdom is upon us, brethren. We're not waiting for it. We're in it. We're not awaiting some man to come down from heaven and establish some earthly kingdom in which we will see with our, with our eyes and, and sit upon back in Jerusalem. We're not awaiting some other people of God to go out and to make sure the gospel gets proclaimed among the nations. We are the people of God. It is our duty that the gospel goes out to the nations. There's no other way it's going to go. So this kingdom come, coming upon us, one we have entered into by faith, beckons us. It is like... I don't know if I want to use the analogy, but it is like we have a string tied around our back and no matter how much we try to run, we will not escape the necessity that we are tied to this kingdom and to its demands to go. 
We can't. And we ought not to. We should enter this kingdom into joy. We have come under Jesus Christ's rule and reign. What other joy ought you to find? You've entered it by faith. It's growing. This kingdom is to grow over the whole face of the earth. It says that all of those kingdoms are going to become the kingdom of the Son of Man. That all peoples, all nations, shall what? Serve and obey Him. And they're not going to do so with pitiless indifference. They're going to do so with joy. They're going to reap the benefits of what Jesus Christ has won and of what He gives in and of Himself. This kingdom's happening now, brethren. When you hear that gospel proclamation at the beginning, when you hear about the missionaries we pray for, you ought to pray for it with a new fervency now, knowing what you just heard. Because here's one thing. Here's one of the biggest applications for us. If we believe this is a church and we're going to preach this here, we ought not to be hypocrites about this. We ought not to just tout these things as some endless, trivial, Christianized things that we love to talk about. Oh, the kingdom of God loves to grow. Oh, we believe Jesus Christ rules and reigns now. Oh, brother, you're so wrong about what you believe over there about the kingdom. And yet everyone we think is wrong is going out and building the kingdom. We ought not be that. doesn't matter if we're 15 or we grow to 1,500. We ought not to be hypocrites, brothers. We ought not to, to behold the glory of the kingdom that has come. It's here. It's now. Its blessings are presented before people, and we offer it to them. We're not telling them to await when we're saying, enter into it now, or be warned. That king is coming again one day. You best believe he's coming, but he's not coming and offering a peace treaty. He's coming with a sword. Says his sword's going to be drinking the blood of his enemies. And there will be no tears shed for those enemies that day, only shouts of rejoicing by the people of God. Not because they want to see the wicked perish, but because they want to see Jesus Christ's name exalted high. That's what this kingdom's brought about for us. And so, our focus, yes, it needs to be future oriented, but what does this focus of looking towards the future of what we know is going to happen do for us now? It makes us here focused. We are not distracted by all of these things people want to talk about for the future. We are not distracted, distracted by endless quarrels of theology, endless quarrels about end times, endless quarrels about whatever you want to make. We are focused on the here and now because we know that today is the day of salvation. We know men are dying today. We know men are going to hell today. We know men are experiencing the second death now. So we need to have a future focus that makes us here focused. We're here now, which means, brothers, as we plan, as we build, as we fight, as we encourage, as we come together and we feast together and we sing songs of praise together, we need to be actually planning as if future generations are going to be entering into this. We ought not be planning as if, well, you know what? They all might be gone by tomorrow and we're just, you know, we might be the only ones left. And not instill into younger men, not instill to the next generation, not to plan and to ask of God and say, Lord, make sure that our candle, that our light is not removed from this place. May it never be said that Redeemer Community Church is gone in 50 years. No trace of its existence. May it not be said. May it be said because we knew with absolute confidence, though we be like Daniel, and this is a warning to us, we be like Daniel, we, we look at this and we go, I don't know how to escape this from Scripture, but Lord, look at the world. Look at these men piling into hell. 
What do you mean the nations are becoming yours and the gospel is going forth? And us, like Daniel, look with such nearsighted unfaithfulness. We look at such nearsightedness. We are blind because of what we see in front of us and not what God has been doing for 2,000 years and will continue to do. And I want to encourage you, do not be blinded by your nearsightedness to where this is going. Brethren, I don't know how to make it all fit together. I don't have answers for everything of why men are going to hell. But I know this. I know at the end, it's going to be at the end when the nations are rejoicing in Jesus Christ. I know that for a fact. That's just what we heard. But as we await that, we ought, to, we ought to await it with the same fervency as Daniel did. Searching the Scriptures, waiting to see those promises to know. He says it, and to cry out to Him for it. That's, all, that's what we ought to do when we find ourselves there. We should not cast doubt that the accomplishment of this will not happen because of our lack of being able to perceive. Don't do that. Don't do it. Brethren, last, I only would repeat Scripture to you that I hope that you would long to hear the voices of those who have never heard. I mean, we think of a family here before us seeking and praying that they, after schooling, would be sent out to an unreached people group. Imagine the joy that would come to their face and their eyes and their heart when they hear the voices of those for generations upon generations upon generations who have never even heard of Jesus repeating the words of Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come to say and we pray and we wait for the day and what we hear them say this, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And let me tell you what, Jesus Christ is that word and Jesus Christ is that law. Brethren, who wants to hear the nation say that? Come, let us go. We have never heard in all of our generations. Come, let us go. Let's, let's go up to this mountain. Let's go up to it and be instructed by none other than Jesus Christ Himself. Let's pray.